Thank you for connecting to the Bethany Chapel Sermon Link. Our prayer is that you will find the following sermon helpful and inspiring for your spiritual journey. If you are a visitor to this resource, or if you've not attended our church, we would love to meet you in person. Our vision at Bethany Chapel is opening doors to God's truth and love. God bless you as you listen. We're we're continuing our series, His Story, and within that series, obviously the last few weeks we've been talking about Noah's flood and the credibility of the Bible story uh, as read, uh, as history. And we're continuing that today. This is really connected and I've entitled our message, Noah's Kin, question mark. If miracles are impossible, then the resurrection of Jesus could not have occurred and we must look for some natural explanation of the events. But if miracles or the supernatural are at least possible, then we can be open to following the evidence without bias. In other words, whenever we hear of an event that seems contrary to the laws of nature, we naturally raise our guard. We've been trained to do that. But we also shouldn't prejudge the evidence by ruling out the possibility of the supernatural just because they don't fit our categories. It's unscientific to decide the outcome of investigation before examining the facts. Consider the following true story. Near the end of the 18th century, the Western world first encountered the duck-billed platypus. The platypus, which is indigenous to Australia, has fur over its entire body, is the size of a rabbit, and has webbed feet. Yet since it lays eggs, reproduces like a reptile. When the skin of a platypus was first brought to Europe, it was greeted with complete amazement. Was it a mammal or a reptile? The platypus seemed so bizarre that despite the physical evidence of the skin and the testimony of the witnesses, many Londoners dismissed it as a sham, kind of like the singing bass on the wall, you know, or the rabbit with antlers. That's what they thought of the duck-billed platypus. Not until a pregnant platypus was shot and brought to London for observers to see with their own eyes did people begin to believe it was a real animal. Until this happened, some of the greatest thinkers refused to accept the existence of the platypus. The initial problem was that it did not fit some people's view of how the world operated. So they rejected it and then reached a verdict even though the weight of the evidence said otherwise. Genesis 1 through 11, which we've been talking about the last few weeks, is sort of the duck-billed platypus of theology. It is full of the supernatural, yet it's full of the natural as well. It includes creation, it includes the fall or sin's entry into the world, it includes early mankind's genealogies, a couple of key ones. It includes then the flood, Genesis 6 through 8, which I believe, and the scriptures teach, is a complete reshaping of the earth's climate, geography, continents, tectonic plates, geology, rock strata, and a reduction of humanity down to eight individuals. It then, which we're going to talk about today, includes a new expansion of the human family, another genealogy, and finally it includes the breakup of the human family, both geographically and as it relates to language, so the physical dispersion of humanity and linguistic dispersion. Then, next week, and my life's going to get a lot better next week, we can just start talking about the life of Abraham, where there is no controversy, so I'm looking forward to that. And some of you are too. Our challenge, though, in these passages is to investigate the credibility of these stories as history. And so the last two weeks we've been talking about the flood. 
and the points we've made is it reads like historical narrative. The genre is historical narrative. You get things like genealogies. I mean, if anything's historical, that's historical. It's affirmed by other biblical writers and Jesus himself. And we said, just as a little bit of a warning, and we'll talk about this later, you don't want to be too dismissive of stories in the Old Testament that are then referenced by apostles, Jesus, and other prophets, because eventually it starts to have an impact on your view of Scripture, inspiration, etc., and Jesus himself getting things right or not. I don't want to believe that Jesus didn't understand the Old Testament or history, since he's God. The flood story also makes sense only if it's global. We talked about all of that, that, uh, that a flood only makes sense globally. There's all kinds of scientific and practical reasons for that. Then we talked about the geological record, which many scientists believe can uh, reflect the flood, and the fossil record, the same. Now, good people disagree. Some of you are good people who disagree on this. Some believe these stories make theological points but were not intended to be read as history. That is a view. I don't agree, that's a view. There are Christians who hold it. Some believe the days of creation were extended periods of time, allowing God to carry out in those extended periods of time a vast evolutionary plan that got us to you know, the upper edge of the animal family and then God infused spirit into Adam and Eve, made them the first people. I don't believe that, some believe that. Some believe in a ruin and reconstruction theory, which would be that there is an old earth underneath our new earth. That's where the dinosaurs and a lot of the fossil record is. And then after that earth was destroyed, God started over, and that's where Adam and Eve start. That's called ruin and reconstruction theories. There are many. I don't particularly believe those. Some believe, or I personally, I want to give the plain reading of Scripture the benefit of the doubt, and so that's what we're doing today. So that leaves us with Noah and his family alone in a post-flood world. So the natural set of fair questions have to do with that. And so again, we're kind of defending this as history. That's the point here. This is not all, you know, what has Jesus done in my life this week? This is about the Bible and views of the Bible and how we look at the Bible. That's really what we're talking about here, as well as the historic nature of these events. So the questions we have to ask as it relates to Noah, since he's left on the earth now after the flood with just his sons, their wives, his wife, etc., is can we prove or is there evidence that the human family that exists now on the planet could come from just Noah and his descendants? That's one question. Related to that, can all racial and language groups come from this small clan? Matthew Oponi was just on the stage. He and I do not look like physical brothers. Can both of us have ancestry in Noah? How did geographical dispersion happen on the planet? Haven't humans been around for 30 or 50 or 80,000 years or more, et cetera, et cetera? So today, what evidence is there that we all come from Noah's clan, if any, and if that's true, this isn't that far back in history either. And this is part of proving the flood narrative is proving this. So we're going to read Genesis chapter 10, verse 32. It's going to be on page 7 in the Bible in front of you. Genesis chapter 10, end of the chapter, and then into the first part of chapter 11. Now these chapters are tied together. The genealogy of one is overlaying the history of another. So Genesis 10 is basically a genealogy. I'm not gonna read through all that. However, if you're pregnant and looking for some great boys' names, that's where you wanna go. Genesis chapter 10. You're gonna find some great ideas for sons. 
All right, and then Genesis chapter 11 is about the dispersion of the human family. They're together because chapter 11 kind of happens during part of the genealogy of chapter 10. We're just going to read chapter 10, verse 32, because it shows the wrap-up of the genealogy. So page 7, chapter 10, verse 32. These are the families of the sons of Noah. Looking back, he's just given us that. These are the families of the sons of Noah, according to their genealogies, by their nations, and out of these the nations were separated on the earth after the flood. Now here's the description of the nations being separated. Now the whole earth used the same language and the same words. It came about as they journeyed east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. They said to one another, come let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly, and they used brick for stone and they used tar for mortar. They said, come let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into heaven and let us make for ourselves a name, otherwise we'll be scattered abroad over the face of the earth. So now this is after a repopulation of the planet. Genesis 10 has given us a whole table of peoples that come out of Noah's sons. This isn't just Noah and his three sons and their wives. This is quite a bit later after after these clans have been established, which are going to become nations, all the people are still together, and they're saying, let's build this tower, otherwise we'll be scattered abroad over the face of the earth. The Lord came down to see this city and the tower which the sons of man had built. The Lord said, behold, they are one people, they all have the same language, this is what they begin to do, and now nothing which they purpose to do will be impossible for them. So let us go down. It's probably a plural, like the Trinity. God often talks this way in the Old Testament. Let us go down and there confuse their language so that they will not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of the whole earth and they stopped building the city. Therefore its name was called Babel because there the Lord confused the language of the whole earth and from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of the whole earth. And I believe one of the big language apps in the modern world is Babel, right? All right, I'm sure there's no connection there, right? All right, so what is the evidence that we all come from Noah, which helps us to prove the Genesis flood theory? That's the connection. So I'm going to begin with the simple one. One, the text could not be clearer. In other words, when you're looking at authorial intent, what is Moses trying to tell us? And on this, I don't think the text could be clearer. I'm going to go back just a little bit to show you that. The prior chapter, Genesis chapter 9, beginning in verse 12. Now, this is after the flood when God said, the rainbow in the future is going to be a sign of my covenant with you that I won't do this again. So chapter 9, verse 12, God said, this is the sign of the covenant which I'm making between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all successive generations. I set my bow in the cloud, and it will be for a sign of a covenant between me and the earth. It shall come about when I bring a cloud over the earth that the bow will be seen in the cloud. And I will remember my covenant, which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. Never again shall the water become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the cloud, then I will look upon it to remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God seems to be repeating himself a little bit here, but we're going to continue. And God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant which I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. Now the sons of Noah who came out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These were the sons of Noah. And here we go. And from these the whole earth was repopulated or populated. All right, so you've got this text here which could not get clearer that there is a claim, Moses is writing it down from Genesis chapter 9 in history. This is a claim that every human being came from Noah and his kin at this point. The rainbow's covenant purpose was to indicate that God would never have a flood again? No, not that, that there would never be a worldwide flood again. 
Obviously, if God is holding himself to no floods, God is not very good at keeping promises. Floods all the time. He's not saying no floods. He's saying there will never be a flood that he causes that will destroy the whole world as happened in Genesis 6, 7, and 8, or specifically 7 and 8. He would never destroy all flesh again. Verse 19, we just read it, from these, these three sons, the whole earth was populated. Now, I just want to help you understand how the texts fit together. Right after Genesis 9, what do you have? Genesis 10. What's Genesis 10? It is an expansion of these three sons into what became a group of clans that became a group of nations, which we'll talk about in a moment. Genesis 10.1. These are the records of the generations of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. The sons of Noah, the sons were, and sons were born to them after the flood. Here we go, verse 2. The sons of Jaseph, or Japheth were Gomer, Magog, Med, and, and it goes on and on and on with all of his kids. When you get to verse 6, the sons of Ham were Cush and Mizraim and Put and Canaan. So you've got his sons. You get down to verse 21. To Shem, the father of all the children of Eber. Those are the Hebrews. The older brother of Japheth, children were born. So you've got in Genesis chapter 10 a breakout of the comment in chapter 9 that the whole earth is going to be populated through this family. Chapter 10 is showing how that originally happened. All of these children that ultimately became clans, that ultimately became nations. So according to Moses and biblical history, what you've got in chapter 10 is the basis for the table of nations around the world. Now, why else would Moses include it? That's the narrative he's creating. So then the question is, the second point, ancient genealogies point to Noah's sons as their predecessors and ancestors. That's the beautiful thing about history. There are actually records of some of this. Now, I want to speak to the text that we read earlier first, this Tower of Babel. Once the flood was over, humanity increased. Chapter 10 is this repopulation. And humanity can increase at a pretty pr rapid rate. We see that in history. We see that now as well. And so we believe that happened. And Genesis 10 is a record of it through Noah's children. God wanted them to populate the earth. Before you get to chapter 10, chapter 9, right after the flood, before the promise of the rainbow, chapter 9, verse 1, God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, kind of like the creation mandate, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So God's intention was always that humanity would populate this globe, this world that he created. He always wanted that. And this is not going on in chapter 10. They're sort of staying together. And in chapter 11, it's not going on. So chapters 10 and 11 are linked. You've got these genealogies. And then you've got this history in chapter 11, this little breakout at one point as the clans are expanding as to what happened. God was not happy with humanity in one central location. Now, there seems to be more going on here, and this is all speculation. It's okay. We know some things, and at times we're just guessing, all right? So we're just going to admit right now we're doing some guessing, okay? Some of you are really glad to hear Pastor Paul say this. Like, I think you were guessing the last two weeks as well. All right, I get it, I get it, I get it. We all love each other, right? Right? Okay. All right. There is some speculation about why the Tower of Babel. Some say, you know, the text isn't as clear as it could have been. There might have been some pride or rebellion going on here. Because in the text it says the people were saying, let us make a name for ourselves. Now there's not much of an explanation of what that meant. But it is in there and it doesn't seem to be a good thing. 
There's also a practical theological concern that could have happened here. Before the flood, one of the problems would have been that everyone sort of agreed and it wasn't they agreed to follow God. All of humanity was violent. All of humanity was rejecting God. We were down to one believing family. And God sort of decided if faith is going to exist on the earth, we're going to start over. So I think if we all speak the same language and we're all watching the same news channel and we're not all getting the truth, the reality is it's easier for mankind to walk away from God. That's possibly what's going on. Sort of the same issue as before the flood. Also, this building may have been some sort of false worship system or temple. We're not sure. The tower, some say this. Now, I would say we had some bad engineers then, but some say this. The tower was a way to avoid a potential future flood. I would say if that's the case, don't put it in the plain of Shinar. Because you just got off Mount Ararat where the boat landed. Um, that's not really good thinking about future floods. But anyway, so that's not a bright group of people. Uh, and, and theologians really don't believe that. I think the one thing we know is from chapter 9 verse 1, God wanted humanity to populate the earth, the whole earth. And that's stated in chapter 9. We know that's part of his motivation. But the point I want to make is this. Conservative theologians, if you look at this as history, are going to say we all started over at Babel as a human family, through Noah's family, through his sons. Others would say if you don't have a global flood, that this is just certain people groups. Maybe the Caucasian races that sort of survived there and other people groups, especially in this continent and especially the Aborigines in Australia, were not connected to this and there's other continents that weren't affected. That would be the other view. And the most difficult people groups, by the way, to deal with are the native peoples in North America and the Aborigines in Australia when it comes to this issue of uh, the flood and people groups that may or may not have been affected. So, first, I want to start here to show you how much of the planet came from Babel and Noah's descendants, then we're going to deal with the outliers. Historians have actually preserved ancient genealogies. We have uh, a genealogy from Nennius, who I believe was, I don't know if he was, a lot of this stuff in, in history took place, like in the Catholic Church, they preserved a lot of human records, so we're really thankful for a lot of that. Nennius, I believe, worked with somebody who was, I don't know if he's a monk or whatever, it's, it's in one of these uh, records. But in the 10th century, he put together, uh, or, or you know, he's on record with a lot of these genealogies. And so we have that from the 10th century. We also have uh, genealogies from Josephus, who lived like in the century before Jesus' birth. So we've got genealogies that go back before Christ that actually sort of deal with the table of nations issues. And so it's the biblical table of nations, at least regionally. I could show you an Irish genealogy. I mean, I literally could show you the book, It's at Home, or it's this one, I'm not sure, but it's in one of four books that I have that I was looking at this week that shows you an Irish genealogy that goes all the way back to Noah through Japheth. I mean, I can show you the names, one after another, all the way down to at least the Middle Ages, basically. We have Nennius Table of Nations through Japheth that give us, now think of these people groups, try to think of your history classes. The Franks, the Romans, the Britons, the Albans, the Vandals, the Saxons, the Bavarians, the Thuringians, Goths, Balagoths, the Gepids, uh, Burgu I'm sure I'm mispronouncing somebody's heritage here, Burgundians, Lombards, and a partridge in a pear tree. We've got, you know, so we've got a genealogy that shows all the way through history where those nations came from all the way back to Japheth 
one of Noah's sons. We're not making this up. We have the genealogies. We have Noah's grandsons. If you read chapter 10, you have a list of Noah's grandsons because you've got these clans. And they're basically the names of future nations. Aram, what's that? Aramaic. Cush, the Cushites or Ethiopians. Madai, the Medes. Gomer, I know this doesn't sound the same. Language does change. That's where the Gauls, Galatians came from. Mechek is a word for Moscow. It's where Russians came from. Canaan, Canaan. Elam, the Elamites. Eber, the Hebrews, and many more. So language changes do change some of these names over time, but linguists would say there's connection to these names. It's pretty clear. These are coming from these descendants of Noah. I saw this. I couldn't find it uh, after I saw it the first time in these four books. I tried yesterday. But we have a secular genealogy of the Chinese people that goes back to one of Noah's sons. Again, the language, the name is close enough that it looks like it's one of Noah's sons. All the way back to Noah. Genesis 10 and 11, in my opinion, was not intended to be representative of humanity. Rather, it represents all humanity. That's the simplest reading of Scripture. So now the question should be, well, is that even racially possible? Because we don't look the same. You know, how did that happen? How can we really be related through Noah's sons? Because we don't really believe Noah and his wife had, and I think some have actually suggested this, which make no sense, like a black son, a white son, and a brown son. I don't think Shem, Ham, and Japheth were of different races. That, to me, is like crazy talk. All right, so third point, racial diversity is well within the human genome's capacity. And this is an important point when you're dealing with this issue and how we came to be the human family and why we don't all look alike. So the race issue is a little confusing for a lot of Christians who are looking for like a specific starting point. And I think unless you're kind of sophisticated in your theological views of, of history and the Bible, you just kind of think, well, at some point, people just started looking different. And that's just not true. So some have read into this, sadly, points of judgment in a couple of Old Testament texts, like God curses somebody and says they're going to serve their brother or whatever. Well, that must be the beginning of this group of people, and, and that's what happened historically. That is tragic and terrible interpretation. Whoever started that ought to be flogged and hung. I mean that sort of metaphorically and sort of with hyperbole, all right, because I don't want you to ever do that to me, all right. But it's terrible theology. Some assume that it actually happened at Babel, and God sort of, uh, with the separation of languages, just sort of miraculously created other races. And that is just, again, that is just a, it's a dumb way of looking at this. The human family, in my opinion, in the opinion of many, we're kind of like the animals that got off the ark, okay? We're not animals. We're made in the image of God. But we're kind of like the animals that got off the ark. There were not 50 kinds of dogs that got off the ark. I would have been okay with it if there were. Maybe the cats would have been exterminated pretty quickly if there were. But there were not 50 kinds of dogs. There were not 50 kinds of cats. By the way, did you know, I learned right before the sermon, there was a cat convention in Edmonton, like this weekend or something. Did you know that? Yeah, like a cat. Who does that? <laughs> Who does that? That's, those people have way too much time on their hands. Need to find a cause. All right. There were not 50 kinds of cats. There were not 50 kinds of horses. There were not 50 kinds of people either. 
And out of those animals that came off the ark, we have 50 kinds of dogs and 50 kinds of horses. Why wouldn't we have genetic variation in the human family? How does that happen? See, all species or kinds have the capacity within their genome for microevolution, within their kind, not to become another kind, but to look different within the kind based on environment and who they mate with, including us. That's why your children tend to look like some of you, right? The reality is very little of our genetic makeup, and I don't know if you know this, and this, I was in, reading on it this week, I'm learning all kinds of things I don't want to know. My brain is heavy right now. I'm looking forward to next week. Very little of our genetic makeup is our skin color. I mean, it is just an infinitesimal part of your DNA. There are greater differences within a given racial group than there are between groups. Okay, did you hear what I said there? There's a greater difference within a group than there is between groups, all right? So that means, I mean, Matthew was up here earlier praying. Forgive me, I hate drawing attention to anything a race in the culture we live in. Matthew and I don't look alike, do we? I mean, some would say he's much better looking. Okay, I get that. That wasn't the point. Matthew and I don't look alike. But there is a greater genetic variation in Matthew's people, if I can say that, than there is, and in my people, than there is between me and Matthew. That's true, genetically. In other words, if I need a kidney there is a great chance that Matthew is a better match than those of you in here who look like me. All right? There is a greater chance that Matthew is a better match than those of you who look like me. That's genetic reality. Hang on to that kidney, Matthew. Not after your kidney. It's likely to get white and black in the world that Noah's family was sort of a middle brown-skinned family which is what most of the people in the world are. They're more middle brown skinned. That is the predominant skin color in the world. Genetically, that allows a variety of skin shades in even one generation, geneticists say. When Babel and the dispersion would have happened, the gene pool was split. At that point, you have everyone sort of intermarrying, forgive me for the word, breeding with each other. The gene pool would not have been as varied. Breeding would be less varied. Traits are naturally going to be inbred in small people groups. So once people spread out, traits that existed in those people became inbred and repeated. And all racial possibilities genetically can come from brown people. Now, I'm open to some genetic evolution, obviously, within our skin as well. People closer to the equator tend to be darker than people further from the equator, etc., 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 I'm open to that microevolution within our genetic makeup. It exists in the animal world. I don't know why it wouldn't exist with us as well. That's not evolution from a kind to another kind. It's evolution within our kind. But even secular anthropologists, okay, people who don't believe in God, who are atheists, and I'm not saying all secular anthropologists are atheists. I'm saying people who are secular anthropologists and evolutionists recognize our universal genetic code and our common ancestry. With the discovery of DNA and the complexity of our chromosomal makeup, people recognize we come from a common group of people, even though we look diverse racially. So, I'm saying every color on the planet can come from Noah and his sons if they were basically light brown people. Geneticists would say that. Well, then the two most difficult groups to deal with are the First Nations in North America, and the Aborigines in Australia. 
First Nations people, it's like, well, how would they have ever gotten here? Again, people believe, not just people who are Christians, but I believe a lot of scientists believe there were land bridges at one point between continents that don't exist today after the melting of the Ice Age. That would explain some North American populations. Uh, the Aborigines in Australia, interestingly, do you know what the Aborigines in Australia practiced historically? Circumcision. Well, where'd they ever get that idea if they were always there and never connected to Noah or Abraham as this dispersion took place? Genesis 10.25, I want to read a verse for you because this would be an easy way out of this for me and I'm not going to take it. Genesis 10.25, two sons were born to Eber. The name of the one was Peleg, for in his days the earth was divided and his brother's name was Jacqueline. You say, Paul, why don't you just preach that? then you can stop arguing with all the geologists who don't agree with you. And there are a lot of geologists who do agree with me, but I could stop arguing with the ones who don't. The Bible says in the days of Peleg, the earth was divided. Well, that would seem to indicate, you know, that that's when the continents spread apart, and that's when the people groups would have been separated. Here's the problem with that. Even geologists who agree with a conservative view of scriptures on this, and with what I've said over the last couple of weeks, would say, that's not what that's talking about. He's talking about the language division that takes place just a few days or a few verses later in chapter 11. Not that the earth was divided physically, because if the continent shifted at that point, you'd have another global flood. You'd have tsunamis and earthquakes and volcanoes and everything you had at the time of the flood again. So that's not the point. The point was that's when language divisions took place. It was during his life that is mentioned just a few verses later. All right, now. Fourth, the human family remembers these events through legends globally. Now, this is fascinating stuff. It really is. There are cultures all around the globe with global flood legends. Did you know that? All around the globe, in places you wouldn't expect. And many also have dispersion and language change legends as well, in places you would not expect. That can't happen if people were all around the globe when the flood took place and was just local. That only happens if people were all together with a common ancestry when these things happened and then they're dispersed and they're keeping some of the original legend, some of the original truth, it becomes legend. They don't have the Bible. Some of these legends get quite distorted, but some are shockingly accurate. And so I'm gonna read about a little of that in Humanity's Collective Memory. I've got a book here. That uh, actually, Ken Ham is the editor of this book. It's got all kinds of authors about all kinds of subjects. Flood legend from Central, all right, so Central America, India, Venezuela, Middle East, China, Southern Europe, Northwest Territories in Western Canada, Indonesia, Quebec, Labrador, East Canada, Victoria. All right, these are all different places. You have these flood legends in various groups of people, various tribal groups. Central America. Humanity was wiped out by a flood, but one man and one woman escaped in a boat and reached a mountain. And the only thing that I didn't add was the names of the people that they put in their legend, which were not Noah. Isn't that interesting? Listen to this one. This is from South America. The sky god came down to the kingdom. Uh, I'm skipping some words, names they put in there. Children, hear me well. Soon a great rain will fall on the earth and will cover all with water. Only four couples listened as the rest scoffed, declaring there wouldn't be any food. 
Capitano and the eight people began building a very large canoe, and when they were done, they went around gathering two of every animal to put on board. They also brought seeds from every plant on earth, etc., etc., etc. Began to rain, rain for many, many days. Soon the entire earth was flooded. This is a South, of, South American tribe in Venezuela that knows there were eight people saved in a great flood. It's not a Christian. How does that happen if they don't have a common ancestry? There's some from the Northwest Territories, etc. Here's another one. This is from Eastern Canada, the uh, Monte, Montaneus tribe. A race of giants was destroying the earth, and God, angry with them for it, commanded a man to build a very large canoe. Now, the race of giants probably comes from the interpretation of Genesis 6, sons of God and daughters of men. The man did as he was told, and as soon as he entered in, the water rose on all sides until no land could be seen in any direction. All right, <laughs> that's interesting. How about language legends and dispersion legends, which to me are much more unique? Western North America, Central America, East Africa, Southern Europe, India, Pacific Island of how uh, Middle East, Southeast Asia, Southern Europe, Western South America, all kinds of places around the globe. Language legend. Suddenly in the night, everybody began to speak in a different tongue except that each husband and wife talked the same language. Now that's not always true. Then he called each tribe by name and sent them off in different directions, telling them where they were to dwell. That is a language and dispersion legend from Western North America, from the, I'm, I'm sorry, Maidu natives. I'm sure I got that wrong. Here's one from East Africa. That of, old, that of old, all the tribes of the earth knew only one language, but that during a severe famine, the people went mad, wandered in all directions, jabbering strange words, so the different languages arose. So they're talking about language and dispersion. Here's one from a Pacific island. They made an attempt to erect the building by which they could reach the sky and see the creator God, but the God in anger chased the builders away, broke down the building, changed their language, so they spoke diverse tongues. You can't make this stuff up. Why would a tribal group even wonder if other people spoke different languages if they've never met other people? In humanity's collective memory are these historic events, even where there is no scripture. Five, a common architecture may be reflecting a common tower of Babel. We're going to fly now. There's one type of building that shows up consistently around the ancient world. We don't build it now. We haven't built it for thousands of years, but for a while they went up on multiple continents, I believe at a similar time in history. The tower is uh, called Migdal. I believe that's a Hebrew word. It's the same word that was used actually of the uh, place where the shepherds announced, uh, announced uh, Jesus' birth. It was, called, uh, it was called a migdal. It's a tower. It's a Hebrew word. So figuratively, a migdal was typically like a pyramidal-shaped tower. And I believe it was used of like flower beds that look like pyramids. Most believe it was a pyramid or a ziggurat or mound-like structure. Because around that time, that's what people built. And when people scattered, that concept shows up all over the world. Mesopotamia, Egypt with pyramids and others, South America, the Aztecs, China, and more. People kind of had this common architecture. Many people believe that's the architecture in mind that's probably what Babel was, and it's probably being repeated after the scattering of the peoples. All right, there it is. I'm just going to wrap up with a couple of points. Again, the point here is to tie Noah and his kin to this history and its credibility. Just a couple apps. Give the Bible's plain sense the benefit of the doubt. 
And I know that's hard in some ways. But my concern is when you've got history written as history and genealogies, which certainly are intended to be history, and then you get Abraham in the next chapter tied to a genealogy in the prior chapter, at what point do you start believing it's true? Be careful when you just start assuming something can't be historically accurate that the Bible presents as history. Otherwise, you don't know where to start trusting it. Now, I know that's a little bit of circular reasoning. You're like, well, if it's not true, I shouldn't trust any of it. I agree, that's the point. That is the point. If I can't trust the history, where would I start trusting in Jesus? Because he's a historical figure. He's not a mythical figure. Just be careful when you start doing that. Second, smart scientists, not just smart people, are on both sides. I want to leave you, if you're skeptical of what I'm saying, and I'm fine with that. I, I love everybody most of the time. The reality is, this isn't like all scientists agree on, you know, geology and anthropology and pastors disagree. That is not the case. Scientists disagree on geology and anthropology. And I'm just quoting some of the ones that agree with me. Scientists are on both sides, not just theologians. And there's plenty of pastors who would agree with the more liberal scientists on this too. They don't all agree with me. I'm a conservative. They're, I'm a dinosaur. When I'm gone, there won't be many of us left. Third, remember the domino effect. Remember the domino effect. When we start saying a part of the Bible isn't true or isn't history, and then you've got Jesus and the apostles and other Old Testament prophets referencing these events as history, eventually you erode your view of inspiration, and in my mind, you erode your view of the deity of Christ. I'm very concerned about following a Jesus who keeps getting history wrong. So just recognize when you have a tension here, that's why you want to give the Bible the benefit of the doubt, is this is a domino effect. Other things are connected. God, we thank you for your goodness to us. And I thank you for your word. And I certainly recognize how none of us were there when all this was happening. And none of us can really prove anything. And so we are all trusting in what we can try to discover from the world around us today what others say they are discovering from the remnants of the world that was. And sometimes there's great biases away from a belief in you and those people, and sometimes those people are believers and they believe that as well. It's a very confusing issue for all of us. It really is. But we also believe your word is truth. And so we have this tension at times. And I pray that you would help us to be discerning as we sort these things out, but to recognize that Your word is truth to give you the benefit of the doubt and to believe where possible that you are giving us the history of humanity, the history of the world, and your history of salvation. Help us in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon. We hope you found it connected you to the God of truth and love who we worship and serve at Bethany Chapel. If you have any questions or want to connect to any of our pastors, please go to our Bethany Chapel app and choose Connect or go online to bethanychapel.com and click Come. Thanks again and God bless you.